0: What would life be like here without walrus hunting?
1: Oh, uh, people would be starving. We'd be asking for emergency food and groceries and stuff like that. Boy, it'd be very hard.
2: Far out in the Bering Sea, in the village of Savunga, the Yupik Eskimos depend almost entirely on walrus to sustain themselves and their lifestyle. In the 1990s, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service began a program co managing the walrus with the Yupik. Their goal was to preserve both the walrus population and the Yupik culture. You're listening to the Nature Stories Podcast. I'm Samantha Brown with Atlantic Public Media, curating this podcast in collaboration with the Nature Conservancy and the Public Radio Exchange. Each week, we bring you stories about the intersection of people and place. Up now, Savunga, the walrus capital of the world, a vintage piece from 1998, produced by Robert Woolsey and Gretchen Parrish, who also narrates the piece.
3: Nelson
0: Aloa is a Yupik Eskimo elder and walrus hunter. He says his people have been hunting walrus for thousands of years. Aloha is a small man with dark, weather-worn skin. His home, Savunga, is on the edge of St. Lawrence Island, about 100 miles off of Alaska's northwestern coast in the icy waters of the Bering Sea. St. Lawrence Island is closer to the Russian Far East than the United States. The land and climate are unforgiving, with snow and ice remaining much of the year. The ocean is steely gray, dotted with icebergs. About 600 people live in Savunga. The houses and community buildings are clustered against the shore. Since everything is within walking distance, there are only a couple of regular vehicles in the village. One is a fire truck. The residents of Savunga depend on all-terrain vehicles and snow machines, or use the wooden boardwalk to conduct their affairs in the walrus capital of the world. But when the men of Savunga go to sea to hunt walrus, they travel in aluminum skiffs. The modern, lightweight boats afford hunters little protection, though, when the prey can weigh up to 3,000 pounds and is armed.
4: One walrus chased us in the water for maybe a quarter mile, and he was just swimming below the surface. You could see the water rising up when he was swimming towards us. So we just took off as fast as we could in our forty-horse outboard motor in the Lund, and that thing kept up with us for about a quarter mile. And I'm glad our motor didn't quit. <laughs>
0: Hunters like Denny Akia know that walrus are dangerous and that the walrus are just one of the many dangers they face. Fog, drifting pack ice, and treacherous waters can all be deadly. But in spite of the obvious dangers, Akia says Eskimo hunters rarely are lost.
4: A friend over at Gamble told me a story where a young bull drove his tusks through the bottom of the boat and they'd made a good-sized hole. So they took a piece of meat that they were carrying that they had in their boat already, and they just plugged the boat up with that, with the blubber side down, plugged up the hole and just, you know, came home safely. This environment where we live, you have to be born here and raised here in order to understand. Like if I went to a city, you know, I I wouldn't last very long.
0: Forced by necessity to learn how to survive in harsh conditions, the Eskimos have acquired not only critical knowledge of their environment, but also knowledge of their prey. It's difficult to imagine what these people don't know about walrus. Nelson Aloa.
3: Some year are lots of walrus, some year not much walrus. Depends on the ice. Long way, something now. The walrus going out north all the time. Too much noise for airplane. That's make walrus going farther, long ways
0: for hunt. Yet, despite their knowledge, the Eskimos of Alaska's western coast have been ignored at times by state and federal wildlife managers. In the late 1970s, Alaska imposed a quota on the number of walrus natives could hunt, and prohibited some villages from hunting at all. The Eskimos were outraged. Their hunters had observed the animals trampling each other and aborting fetuses, signals to them that there were too many walrus, not too few. In 1978, the village of Togiak filed suit, and since winning their case the following year, has been actively pursuing a role in the management of walrus. Sixteen years later, the U.S. Congress amended the Marine Mammal Protection Act and authorized federal dollars for a creative program of co-management where natives and biologists regulate the subsistence use of walrus together. More important was the formal recognition of the United States government that the traditional knowledge and skill of the Eskimo people is valuable.
5: We learned a couple years ago that we don't know as much as we think we know about these animals.
0: Dave McGilvery is the supervisor of the Marine Mammal Management Office of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Anchorage.
5: We had to prepare stock assessments and there's a lot of information gaps. And so traditional knowledge obviously is something that we learn a lot from and the folks that live out there and use the animals and know where the animals go and their habits and so on and so forth uh, You can't read that in books. You have to, you know, be there and learn it.
0: The people who hunt walrus can tell scientists much about the size of the population and the reproductive health of the herd. However, the relationship between the Native people and the government is far from perfect. While the two groups are working together more closely than ever before, communication gaps and mistrust still linger. Caleb Pungawi is the executive director of the Eskimo Walrus Commission.
5: To us, um, to have a say, to have a voice in what goes on is very important. And also to recognize our knowledge of what goes on out there because they're in daily contact. They probably see more or have understanding more of the health of a population than a scientist who goes out there every spring or summer. You know, our people have years and years of experience of uh, observing the population.
2: Good morning. Good morning,
0: Roland. How are you? I. Are you going out hunting today? Maybe I talk to my brother. Okay. The residents of Savunga are pleasant but distant hosts. What's As that? I walk through the village, I realize that people are reluctant to open up to me. Possibly because I am Caucasian, and particularly because I am a journalist. No hunting captain was willing to take me out on a trip. And the walrus sounds heard on this program were recorded by a biologist. One local told me that the village is suspicious of reporters because the press has portrayed residents as greedy poachers, hunting walrus only for their valuable ivory tusks. One such incident occurred in 1996, when about 20 slaughtered walrus washed up on a beach in Kotzebue Sound. However, Punggawi insists incidents of wasteful hunting are the exceptions, not the rule.
5: The majority of the hunters are responsible hunters, and it's just a very few that, you know, like any other place, that makes it bad for the hunters.
0: The villagers are also wary of environmental and animal rights activists who are opposed to hunting. For anyone who has grown up with a supermarket down the street, it may be hard to see the point of walrus hunting but for most people in Savunga, the diet is about 60% walrus.
1: How did you do today, Truman? One
3: walrus and
6: uh, one uh, seal. One walrus and one mucklock. Okay. Is that uh, walrus, male or female? Female with, the,
1: uh, calf. Female with the calf.
0: Since I am unable to accompany the hunters, I joined Jonathan Snyder on shore. We stand on a large piece of shore ice, which remains anchored on the island's edge until summer. And Snyder, a fish and wildlife water. employee, asks hunters for information as they unload their boats from the day's hunt. Do
2: you know, was that calf a male or a female? Male. A
6: male. Okie dokie. If I could uh, put a set of There's tusk set labels on the tusk.
1: Oh, great! Thank you.
0: Snyder and the four local native harvest monitors are stationed in different places along the coast. The hunters provide teeth, reproductive tracks, and unusual or diseased tissue samples from the walrus, which are later examined by scientists at a laboratory in Anchorage.
6: Here we have a tooth passing through the saw um, the central cores is, is being prepared here. The saw blades cut and polish at the same time.
0: Fish and Wildlife Service the biologist thin, Joel Garlick-Miller uh, has his work literally middle, cut out for him. He uses a water-cooled lapidary saw to slice walrus teeth and then spends countless hours analyzing them. In this laboratory, a thin section of tooth is magnified through a microscope There's and projected onto a make. video screen. And what we're
6: looking at here is a longitudinal thin section of the lower canine tooth of a walrus. Now, throughout the lifetime of the walrus, uh, cementum, one of the tissues of teeth, is laid down in annual growth layers. With each year of life, another growth layer is laid down. So what we want to do is we section the teeth and we count the number of growth layers represented in the cementum. And this gives us an estimate of the age of the walrus. And we could... uh, Count the growth layers together if you like. This would represent the first year of life, the first growth layer, so that would be one, two, three, four,
0: five. Garlic Miller also studies the reproductive tracks hunters have turned in. If Miller can determine how old the animals are when they reproduce, the correlation can give scientists insight into the animal's environment. Garlic Miller explains that walrus can reproduce at an earlier age when there is plenty of food available.
6: Uh, we examine the reproductive status by uh, examining both the uterine horns and the ovaries. We, we use structures that, that occur in the ovaries to tell us whether the animal has ever ovulated before. This tells us if it's a sexually mature animal. We also examine the uterine horns Uh, We look at these to determine whether uh, it's currently uh, pregnant or not pregnant, but we can also get an estimate of its previous reproductive success by the scars left in the uterus, by the placenta.
0: Knowing the age of the animals and what proportion of the population is pregnant, are the main factors managers use to estimate how much harvesting the walrus population can handle.
6: Population estimates are, are very hard for marine mammals because it's a huge area to survey, for one thing, and also, of course, the fact that they are marine mammals and you have to correct for a certain proportion of animals which are not available for viewing because they're under the water.
0: Although the exact number of Pacific walrus is not known, biologists currently believe the population off Alaska's coast is healthy and stable at an estimated 230,000 animals. The size of the population has varied throughout the years due to exploitation. Just after the American Civil War, Yankee whalers took as many as 12,000 walrus per year and nearly wiped out the population. Mass starvation resulted among Alaska's coastal natives and about 70% of the St. Lawrence Island Eskimos died. Conservation measures instituted as late as the 1950s have helped the walrus climb back up. In 1996, less than 1,000 walruses were harvested by people living in Savunga and the other walrus hunting communities monitored by Fish and Wildlife.
1: One to 109 are good.
5: Okay, did you find 110? I've got 111 here. 119. Yeah, I got 110.
0: The amount of information about 11, walrus coming out of 12, Garlic 12, Miller's lab 13, 13, 13, is tied directly 15, to the amount of information collected by Jonathan Snyder and the team of harvest monitors. After data is collected on the shore ice, the monitors return to their temporary office, a house, to compile it. In the kitchen, two of the local harvest monitors. Reggie Wonkatillin and Lance Imergan entered data into a laptop computer. This is the second year Imergan has worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service as a harvest monitor. In Savunga, most people carve ivory to make money. There are a few other employment opportunities, so Imergen feels lucky to have this job. He says it has given him more information about the walrus hunt and has taught him computer skills. The Fish and Wildlife Service is depending more and more on local monitors like Imergen. According to Dave McGilvery, the project's supervisor, this adjustment is intentional.
5: We don't have to bring a bunch of bureaucrats in from Anchorage or somewhere to go out and do things. Many of the things that are being done can be done best by local people.
0: It's been a long day, and the guys working for the Fish and Wildlife Service take a break from organizing their data. Snyder asked me if I want to head out with him to get water. The homes here, most built on stilts, have no running water. Toilets, called honey buckets, are plastic bins lined with plastic sacks with toilet seats on top. Drinking water is located at a central pump house. We gather empty water jugs, place them on a trailer, and head over on a four-wheeler. I get my first lesson in driving a four-wheeler and take my first test ride on the gravel road that connects the grocery store, the school, the post office, and the lavateria, which houses public showers and the laundromat. On the wall is a hand-painted sign reminding patrons to remove bullets from their pockets before using the dryers. After my self-guided tour, I head for a shower, which costs me a quarter per minute. Following dinner, I find Snyder dialing up the National Ice Center to get a current ice map. Eskimos know walrus follow the receding ice pack, and the map shows where the ice is and where it's breaking up.
2: Welcome to the National Ice Center auto-polling system. For Arctic ice analysis and forecast, press 1. For Arctic regional charts, press 2. At the tone, please press the start or receive button on your fax machine. There may be a short delay before you hear the fax tone.
0: The ice maps are posted on a bulletin board at a local grocery store. The Fish and Wildlife Service also provides the hunters with information regarding contaminants in the walrus tissue. These are symbols of Western science and the modern world working their way into native life. But the Eskimos have survived for thousands of years without the benefit of this technology, and there are some who resent the intrusion. Still, native leaders believe science has something to offer them. Co-management is a chance for people from two vastly different worlds to work together toward the same ends, preserving the walrus and preserving the hunt. The
1: rough are the right. <laughs> Everybody get a neck when they're hunting too much. (laughs) When the
0: hunters of Savunga return from a day's hunt and unload their boats, they become freight handlers. They pull out burlap sacks of walrus meat, blubber, and tusks. Not a single walrus carcass is in sight. One boat has brought back a hide to be used to cover a wooden frame of a whaling boat, known as a umiak. The hide is so heavy, the hunters use a snowmobile to pull it out of the small aluminum boat. The walrus are so huge, hunters butcher them out on the ice pack and bring them home in parts. The walrus themselves weigh between 1,500 and 3,000 pounds and average 10 and a half feet in length. The walrus habitat is a dangerous and challenging setting for the hunters traveling in open water through freezing spray and choppy seas. Six or so men sit in close quarters in each boat. Their bulky, cold-weather coveralls and parkas permit almost no one the luxury of a life jacket. They've got a small craft advisory out this afternoon. We really hope everybody makes it back today. They're getting rough out there? Yeah, getting yeah. rough out there. The ocean itself can be treacherous and the cold and fog life-threatening. The hunters use modern equipment, such as VHF radios and global positioning devices, to help them get home. In order to succeed, or even to survive, the Eskimos have extensive knowledge of ice and currents acquired over generations. Once a walrus is shot and the hunting party goes ashore to butcher the animal, every stroke of the knife must be precise to prepare the walrus as quickly as possible. If the moving ice closes in around the hunters, they could become stranded and have to tow their heavy boat across the ice to get back to open sea. The dangers of the hunt, combined with the Yupik cultural dependence on this resource, make the killing of a walrus something not to be taken lightly. At age 37, Delbert Pungawi is a young boat captain in Savunga, but he is well-versed in his people's traditions of respect for this animal.
1: When we get our animal... This is my grandparents taught me, you know, pay their animals their respect, give them their drink of water and poke their eyes.
0: Why do you poke their eyes?
1: That's to signify um, the release of their spirit, the animal spirit, so they will not look through those eyes anymore. The belief is that when you kill an animal, it doesn't know it's dead. It's still looking through the eyes. So when you poke the eyes, that's signifies the animal spirit is released. When you give them a drink of water, that's your respect to the animal. That give them their last first drink of water, and that when they come back in another animal that they'll give themselves to us again.
0: Having returned safely, yeah. the hunters divide up their meat among their crew and any families who don't have someone to hunt for them. Before heading home, they load the front of their skiffs onto sleds, and snowmobiles tow the boats farther up the shore ice, where they rest until another day. Meanwhile, one man who declined to take me out on a hunt invites me to watch as he and his brother cut the blubber off a walrus hide. The two men speak Yupik to each other. The few words they speak to me are in English. Although they both refuse to be recorded, they say, I can learn a lot by just watching. The sun glistens on the yellow blubber, streaked with what looks like tiny red veins. The brothers' faces look intent as they drape the ends of the walrus hide over round plastic buoys. The bright orange floats provide a smooth surface for cutting the fat off the skin. One brother looks at the hide and tells me that the walrus is a beautiful animal. We wouldn't kill it, he says, if it weren't our food. Later the blubber will be rendered into oil, which the Yup'iks of St. Lawrence Island dip meat into like a one sauce. It takes the brothers 2 hours to cut the yellowish blubber off the hide, and I tough out the cold for most of the time. It's May, and I'm wearing snow boots, gloves, hat, and a winter jacket. The wind is bone-chilling. I announce that I'm going home, and they quickly agree that I'd better. Then they look at each other, as if they were wondering how long I'd last. I head to their mother's house. Her name is Annie Aloa. Outside, Aloa has an inflated walrus stomach hanging by her porch. It is yellow and translucent, and will be used to cover a drum. The softer hide of the female walrus is used to cover the ribs of a boat. The intestines are thoroughly cleaned and made into raincoats. Much of the meat is hung outside to dry and will be eaten the rest of the year. Alois says the Eskimos use nearly all of the walrus parts.
5: From way back, we eat the clams inside the stomach. When I scrape in the inside of the stomach, I cook them, and it's my favorite food. I could even clean it up and let you taste them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I want to. I want to try things.
5: Okay. And do you also
0: carve the ivory from the tusks? Yeah, even the teeth, we carve them. The Eskimos also carve the valuable ivory into detailed animals and native figures. Annie's husband Nelson says walrus is their staple, as important to the Eskimos as potatoes are to white men.
3: We like walrus, female, bull, cub, like just well like a potatoes.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, that's what we like potatoes for walrus meat. We want, we want uh, tired walrus meat every, every day. Just like you eat the potatoes the, or carrot or vegetable.
0: The system of co management still has a lot of room to grow. Alaskan Eskimos are not the only people that hunt the Pacific walrus. Indigenous cultures of the Russian Far East also take significant numbers of animals. Although an international treaty governing walrus is years away, the co-management agreement worked out in Alaska seems like a first step toward accommodating more than one viewpoint,
5: Caleb Pungawi. In co-management, we sit down together. We discuss the avenues for managing a resource, and in this sense... You bring everybody together as a group: the managers, the biologists, the law enforcement people, and the users. And therefore, you have a better communication system of working together, so that the problems that are associated with um, a single management form of system are avoided. You know, you have communication going always instead of just one way. <laughs>
0: My lasting impression of Savunga is not of the desolate spaces, but of the voices of the people whose lives are inseparable from the walrus. I have to wonder if those voices will really be heard over the fax machines and computers and laboratories, the drone of a culture obsessed with technology. The simple answer is, they must, if the walrus-based culture of the St. Lawrence Island Yupik is to survive. What would life be like here without walrus hunting?
1: Oh, uh, people would be starving. Uh, We'd be asking for emergency food and groceries and stuff like that. Boy, it'd be very hard.
2: That piece was produced in 1998 by Gretchen Parrish and Robert Woolsey. The walrus co-management program between the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Yupik Eskimos has been a success and is still in place today. If you'd like to hear more pieces like this one, be sure to visit the Public Radio Exchange at prx.org. Support for this podcast comes from The Nature Conservancy, online at nature.org slash stories, committed to protecting nature and preserving life. I'm Samantha Brown with Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Join us next week for a brand new Nature Stories podcast.